would be awesome. Thanks. <laughs> so anyway, let's get started. Um, let me just offer you this. To, to forgive, at least that there are three obstacles to forgiveness, I think. One obstacle to forgiveness is our own pride. The other obstacle to forgiveness is our anger. And the other obstacle to forgiveness is our own anxiety. So we have these three things. We have our pride, we have our anger, and we have our anxiety. And they are obstacles to forgiveness. Now, when I say the word forgiveness, I don't need to explain to you what forgiveness is. Like you all have some concept or some understanding of what forgiveness might mean. When I was growing up, my mother would not allow us to say, I'm sorry. She had this whole formula. So when we did something wrong, we would have to say, I did X, Y, and Z. Would you please forgive me? And then the person who got the request had to say, I forgive you for X, Y, and Z. Right? It wasn't just, I'm sorry, and then we go off and play. But there was this thing because my mom wanted us to understand that that forgiveness means that there's something being forgiven. Right? So I think we all have an understanding of forgiveness. In fact, I think we all kind have a sense of that we're supposed to forgive, but that it's very difficult. In fact, we, we start thinking about, okay, well, there's this betrayal or this painful thing that happened to me or this. Like, we have all of these different things that we're like, I just don't know if I can forgive for that. I don't know if I can do it. Now, as a, as a pastor, I spend a lot of my time talking to people about what is going on in their life. And when it comes to forgiveness and the difficulty to forgive, a lot of times, yes, there's painful betrayals, there's times you were neglected, but most of the difficulty to forgive has to do with the words that, um, the words that are used. And in Proverbs 18.21, the writer says that um, life and death are bound up in the tongue. That the words that we use either offer life or death. And in the places where we've experienced painful things, there's also a whole bunch of words built around those painful things. And when we lay in bed, the thing that we do is rehearse those painful words as they stab us in the heart. Right? Because it's difficult to forgive because words creep in and make it difficult. So tonight and for the next six weeks or so, we're going to talk about forgiveness. But we're not going to offer you, or I'm not today, and then people, other people who are speaking are not going to offer you a comprehensive definition of forgiveness right up front. I don't know how many of you saw The Karate Kid, the only one that matters, the original one, right? With Ralph DiMaggio or whatever his name is and Mr. Miyagi. And, and if you know the story at all, you know that Ralph DiMaggio wants to learn karate. I know this is a bad summary of it. But Miyagi, the master, has him doing things like waxing his cars, you know, wax on, wax off, and painting the fence up and down. And, and it seems that none of these things have anything to do with karate. 
But in the end, what he learns is that as it's built up, as he does these different things that seem disconnected, when they're put together, he has a holistic martial art, right? He's actually able to fight people who have black belts, and it's amazing, right? Because he did it by waxing a car and painting a fence. Like, so you too can learn martial arts. Go watch that movie. But but we're, we're going to work our way towards Easter and towards the cross and reflect on forgiveness by reflecting on things that build forgiveness. And maybe we'll kind of accidentally have a robust definition of forgiveness. But for, for just the verse, the two verses that we're going to reflect on over the next um, few weeks uh, are in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. But I'm only going to read to you 32. It says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, God, just as in Christ, God forgave you. And this is the verse and the pre, and verse 31 are the ones that we're going to reflect on over and over and over again over the next few weeks. And so you can spend time just reading them and reflecting on the words and, and kind of dissecting the words in this passage and wrestling with them. But tonight, I actually want to start at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4 because Paul is going to kind of establish for us what um, it looks like, what it looks like to live in a community that is practicing forgiveness and kind of what the expression of, and what are some of the practices that then lead to forgiveness. So I'm going to start out in... um, verse 1 of chapter 4 of Ephesians. It's in the New Testament. If you have your black Bible here, you grab one, it's 1226. Verse 1 says, as a prisoner for the Lord. So Paul starts out as a prisoner for the Lord. Well, if you know anything about Ephesians, you know he's writing in prison. So he's a prisoner of the Romans. But what he's about to say is important. And what he's also saying is in just the statement of his identity as a prisoner of the Lord, he's saying, I'm not a prisoner of the Romans. I'm a prisoner of the King Jesus. When he says Lord, he's talking about King Jesus. And so he's saying, like, all of us are captive to one thing or another. We are either captive to evil or we are captive to good. And what he's saying is, I am not in a Roman prison. No, I am a prisoner of the good Lord. Okay? And then he says, then, and this is why he, he, he can say, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So, if you had read Ephesians, and I encourage you, chapter 1 to, and to chapter 3, what you would know is that Paul talks that whole time about what your calling is and what you're called out of. But a good way to sim- summarize what you're called out of is simply you are called out of your pride. And you are called out of your anger. And you are called out of your anxiety. Because if you decide to follow Jesus and accept his death and his resurrection and the promise of everlasting life and life with God, then what you're saying really is, I am leaving behind insanity. Insanity is pride, anger, and anxiety. Like that's diagnosably insane. When you're proud and you're angry and you're anxious, you're insane. What God is calling us into, the calling that we have, is into being human. Okay? Now, I'm sorry to kind of 
maybe push the whole martial arts thing, but I'll push it just a little bit more. Um, because in martial arts, there are two forms. There are closed fist forms and open hand forms. Okay. So an open-handed form of martial arts is something like Aikido, which has no def- uh, offensive moves in it. Its complete design is to, to subdue you, to stop you from punching them, and to use your own momentum against the person, but never to punch, kick, or destroy them, but to subdue them, to put them in holds, to keep them from hurting anybody. Karate is on the opposite end. It is an art designed to punch and to kick and to force its way into people's space, right? Well, in Christianity, in following Jesus, there are two disciplines. One discipline is repentance. The other discipline is forgiveness, or two practices. And all of the faith, all of following Jesus, revolves around these two things, practicing forgiveness and practicing repentance. So the invitation from Paul when he says to live worthy of your calling is what he's inviting you into is the practice of forgiveness and the practice of repentance. So we're going to focus mostly on repentance, I mean on forgiveness, and I'm going to kind of paint that for you a little bit about what a community would look like if it was actually practicing forgiveness or what were some of the things that it would do. And Paul kind of lays that out. So he calls us into this intense practice, live worthy of our calling. And he says, be completely humble. Be completely humble. Now, Christians invented humility because humility was not a good thing in the ancient world. It always had some bad connotation to it. But what it means is to have self knowledge, right? To be self-aware. But also, there's a reason behind humility to have self-aware, that self-awareness. It's self-awareness that leads to empathy, okay? So at the, at the village, a lot of times we, you might be accused a little bit of navel-gazing or people who spend way too much time looking inside to see why things go on, but there's a reason for that. And the reason is this, I cannot have empathy for you in your addictions or whatever it is that you're struggling with if I am not understanding my own addictions and understanding my own compulsions and understanding my own inability to conquer certain things, right? Because what happens is if I do not look inside and understand my own battle and my own struggle and my own brokenness, all I can offer somebody is sympathy. And sympathy is useless because sympathy leads to pride. Because sympathy is, it's too bad that you're going through that. I'm really sorry that you're going through that. Here's two bucks. Let's move on. Right? Sympathy is something that doesn't, it has, it's not connected to where the person is. Empathy, empathy says, I know what it's like to struggle with that addiction. I know what it's like to struggle with that loss. And I can walk beside you and we can walk in loss and struggle together. Right? And if you were at the conference, you might have heard me say that it's this revolutionary new thing in psychotherapy that they're discovering that counselors are not very effective unless they're self-aware and empathetic. If they have no capacity to actually say, you know, I know what it's like to be in the place that you're in, 
they're usually ineffective, right? So what happens is, is that when you and I are not humble, when we don't practice humility, we're not self-aware and stepping into empathy, we become very proud people, and it makes it very difficult for us to forgive or to step into forgiveness. The next thing it says there is that we're to be gentle. So these are being things. We're supposed to be humble. We're supposed to be gentle, right? Now, Aristotle describes this particular word, and we translate the word meek. He basically says it's being able to be angry at the right times and kind at the right times. Like There's this idea that you have your passions under control, and you know when to be kind and when to be stern. Like That's actually what gentleness is. You're appropriate with the way that you behave. Now, let me just show you what happens when you're not gentle and how it makes it difficult to to elicit forgiveness and to offer forgiveness. Last night, I was playing a board game with my children and my wife called Splendor, which I think a number of you have played at our game nights. Um, I love the game. It's easy to explain, except apparently sometimes I explain it wrong um, for some of you. <laughs> Apologize for that. Um, that's easy to explain, easy to learn, and, and in my mind, relatively addicting. Now, it's designed in a certain way that my wife always wins. It just fits right into her brain. So we're playing last night, and she won the first game. No big deal, all right? So the second game, I'm like, I'm going to win. I got this, all right? So it's coming around, and I notice she's got a certain amount of points, and she's going to take a card, and I, I can see she's going to buy that card. And I'm like, okay, I need to take that card so she doesn't get it and win. And then I count her points. And I count that card. I'm like, okay, she's not going to win. I'm going to win. I've got this figured out. And so I don't take the card. I play my turn. And she buys the card, and then she t- which kicks off another card, which has more points on it. And she wins. And she says, I win. <laughs> and I threw my cards and swore, which was fascinating to my son, who happened to say, Wow, my pastor just swore. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> now what was interesting in that was that I undermined my wife's winning because what happened was I was mad at myself because I let her win in my head, I, right? Like I, I, I let her win, so I'm mad at me. So I'm undermining her like celebration of winning with that. And I'm teaching my children how to lose well, right? That's... <laughs> So, so this is what happens, and when we live in those, create those kinds of environments, it's actually difficult to repent and to ask for forgiveness and to forgive, right? Because what's really being attacked there? My pride. My pride is being attacked there. Like, and I'm choosing hubris over gentleness. So the third thing that it says here is to be patient. So we're to be gentle, we're to be humble, but we're also to be patient. Now, patience has two ideas kind of built into it. One of it is a holy stubbornness, right? Patience is a holy stubbornness. But more importantly than that, patience is the willingness to not retaliate. Now, I wasn't going to use his name, but he's not here, so I'll use his name. Uh, Russ, who I love to death, is a man of patience. He is a man of patience. I don't know if you have ever seen him with a gaggle of 12-year-old boys. 
postulating everything that they can possibly postulate about life and science and what they know and what they think. And he sits there and listens and answers their questions and starts kicking stuff up on his computer and showing them pictures. And this can go on for hours. And I'm thinking, this man needs a sainthood. Like, we need to have him sainted. We just don't have a pope here. But if we could, we would. And so... and. He's a perfect example. That's what patience is. This holy stubbornness to not allow people to kind of push us into anger. But the other thing is that it's a willingness to not retaliate. And in the body of Christ, there is a lot of immaturity, right? Because we're all in different places. In fact, Paul says to us, in Romans, that we should take care of the weaker brother, which is actually a sleight of hand in saying all of you are the weaker brothers. So whoever you have trouble with, like you're the weaker brother. Like We're all at different places. And here's kind of the idea. When, you know, little Sertia is, you know, Mark and Lane's littlest, or only right now, but littlest right now. Um, when, when Sertia like kind of climbs up onto an end table and pulls something down and breaks it, Mark doesn't grab her and like smack her and go put her in the room and lay her in the crib and say, you can't come out for three hours because you broke something. Because she's like, she, she's not mature enough. She can barely walk. She doesn't even understand the concept of things. So patience, in a sense, is being a willingness to not retaliate against people's immaturity. Like it's a forbearing of people's immaturity, right? And so a lot of times, an environment of forgiveness is created when people are willing to be patient. But patience, if you're the one being patient, is like sandpaper on flesh, right? It's just like, right? A lot of times. That's the experience in community that we have. But it leads to forgiveness. Now, the next thing that Paul says there is that we're to bear with one another in love. We're to bear with another... In love. So, so be patient, be humble, be gentle, and we're to bear with one another in love. Which really, this is just an unstoppable kindness, right? To bear with somebody in love is an unstoppable kindness. And my son illustrates this to me nonstop because I'm a grouch. I am a very grouchy person sometimes. I blame all of you, but I'm grouchy, and he loves me. He wants to spend all his time with us. He He's, of course, 100% an extrovert, so he can just kind of, oh, just doesn't see our grouchiness. But, but he wants to be around me, and he's smiling, he's laughing. And his thing is, Dad, what are you excited about? Are you excited about board game night? Are you excited about going to church tonight? Are you excited? And I'm like, no! not excited (laughs) but you're excited and he's unstoppable like he's unstoppable in that excitement and he models to me what we're called to in community right because that unstoppable love in the midst of grouchy people in the midst of the body of christ (laughs) leads to forgiveness it creates an environment of forgiveness it creates an environment of forgiveness Now, Paul goes on, and he says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
So, the things that prevent us from forgiving are pride and anger, and this third one is anxiety. And all of us are anxious, right? This is why the Bible repeatedly says, don't be afraid, don't be anxious, right? What's the number one diagnosis when you go into to see a counselor or a psychiatrist or a doctor is that you're anxious, you have some kind of anxiety, right? We, we all have this. And yet what Paul is saying is that for us to be a community that forgives one another, we can't be anxious. And the way to do that is that we have to strive, make every effort. And I love this. He says, be patient, be humble, be kind. Oh, make every effort to be unified in the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, we talked last a couple of weeks ago about Psalm 23. And the beginning of Psalm 23 is, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want or I shall lack nothing. And the way we kind of retranslate it is, I stand with Jesus and I have peace, right? I'm at peace. Here's the thing that, that stops anxiety. When you stop trying to be in control, right? Anxiety is produced by you trying to be in control of everything. Disunity is produced by you trying to be in control of everything, Right? Control is the thing that produces anxiety, and control is the thing that makes us not unified, right? When you think about your marriages, when you think about this church, when you think about your work with your friends, the places where there's disunity is where you're trying really hard to control perception, to control the way people behave, to control how people understand who you are. Control. It's the thing that drives anxiety. So the invitation from Paul is, okay, if we're going to have unity, if we're going to make every effort for unity, then we're all going to have to say, I align myself under Jesus. Jesus is the one who is in charge. But here's the, the thing that we struggle with in that, is that we can say, okay, maybe I can practice being humble. Yeah, those are cool ways of defining all that, Eric. But when it comes to deal with my anxiety, and when it comes to dealing with control, I just don't think that Jesus is actually somebody to trust. I mean, ultimately, it comes down to that. We are anxious, and we don't think Jesus is trustworthy. So, so let me tell you that in the face of wherever it is that you are wrestling with unforgiveness, because unforgiveness is the thing that, you know, creates disunity. The places that you are unwilling to forgive, that's where disunity is. Let me put forward that Jesus is trustworthy. That Jesus is trustworthy. Like all, and this is one example of that. It's just a simple one. Martha and Mary, right? When um, Lazarus dies and they show up and meet Jesus on the road and they say, if you were here, this wouldn't have happened. And he could have said, yeah, sorry about that. I had to walk. He could have healed Lazarus from far away. He weeps. Like, Jesus weeps in response to this. Why do I think that means he's trustworthy? It's that he's in your mess. He's broken and hurt and wrestling with it just like you are. Right? There's, so, so my encouragement to you is for you to begin to process 
where it is that you don't think God is trustworthy, because that's where your most of your anxiety is, and that is where, where most of the disunity is in your relationships. Now, Paul continues, and he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in all. So Paul kind of ties this all up by saying, hey, we're all connected to each other, and we're all connected through baptism, through the body, through the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. Now, in Matthew 18, 20, I believe it is, Jesus says that wherever two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst. Wherever two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst. So if the if the disciplines of Christianity, of living out worthy of your calling, is, is forgiveness and repentance, and the way that that shows up is the practice of humility and gentleness and unity and patience and long-suffering, guess what? Jesus is with us now, living out those things too. And the crazy thing is that I don't know if we really realize how mind-blowing all this is. Like, we talk a lot and, and about, and we joke about, like, this idea of being monastic, right? And people are like, whatever, we're monastic. That doesn't mean anything. Yeah, you know why I keep talking about it? Is yes, you know what a monk does or a nun does? They forsake the world to live out their life in dedication to the God of the universe, to practice repentance and forgiveness. And the invitation from them and the challenge to us is that this following of Jesus is something to take serious, but it's something that is powerful because Jesus does it alongside you and it brings sanity. It moves you away from pride and anger and anxiety and brings to you sanity. The practice of forgiveness brings sanity. Now, I know I said we wouldn't define forgiveness, but but understand that when we're talking and as we talk about forgiveness, we're not saying forgive people and forget it and move on and forgive the people who are horrific to you and 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 alleviate their consequences. That's that's not what we're talking about. When you forgive someone, what you are saying is you hurt me. There is a wound. Actually, forgiving someone is saying they wounded you. Not forgiving them and being angry and and being prideful and anxious is just saying, I am not even going to acknowledge that there's a wound. I'm just going to bind it up and beat you. Right? I'm going to hurt you. I want justice. You see, but forgiveness says, all right, there's a horrible wound. And for unity, I'm going to give up my demand for justice and invite you to begin to lift the burden of wounding me, right? But the way that happens is not by us actually focusing on how to forgive one another. It actually happens when we say, how do I practice humility? What does it look like to look inside and practice empathy? What does it look like for me to be gentle? What does it look like for me to be like Russ and be patient? like my son and be exuberant like in the mix in the in community 
So I'm really excited about what God is going to do in this community as we wrestle with forgiveness. Um, what time is it? 6.15. All righty. Well, I'm going to pray then. Let's pray. I was going to have some questions, but we're out of time. Father, thank you so much for this community. I just pray that you would begin to massage into us um, forgiveness, that you would begin to massage into our community um, a passion to run from our pride and our anger and our anxiety and to replace it with humility and gentleness um, and long-suffering and unity under you. And I ask that in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. There are a few ways tonight to respond to the Word of God. One is offering. If you're visiting with us, there is no need to give. We're just happy to have you. But this is the way that we support our community. It's the way we pay our pastors, keep on the lights, feed you delicious lemon, chicken, and rice, all those good things. Um, that's how we support our community. The other way to respond to the Word of God tonight is that white chair back there is called the healing chair. As the music plays and as you sing, if you feel like, man, I need to ask for healing, I need to, I need it in part, I can't forgive, or I need to repent, you can go sit in a healing chair and somebody will pray for you. The third way to respond is through communion. On the night that Christ was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And at the end of the Passover meal, he took the third cup of wine and he held it up and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, the blood of the new covenant. If you can say, I stand with Jesus and his broken body and his blood poured out for me, please come up, take the bread, dip it in the juice and remember what Christ has done. If you can't do that, then we ask that you not take communion. The last way to respond is to sing. We're going to sing four songs. We're going to sing one from Psalm 42 that was written at Creativity Night. This is a place for you to declare the words of God over the people around you or to have them pour over you. So I invite you into that as we respond to God's word.